certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Today, the trial of the century resumed. With strict social distancing in the courtroom, Bradley Edwards took his place in the dock. Welcome to Day 60 of Claremont in Conversation. I'm Natalie Bongiolo. Joining us for Week 15, Legal Affairs Editor at the West Australian, Tim Clark, and Forensic Scientist, Brendan Chapman. Well, it's been a 10-day adjournment, and Tim, COVID-19 has changed the world in that time. What was it like being in court today? Um, a lot quieter than it has been um, the last 15, 20 weeks, Nat. I've got to say, there was... Literally one person uh, that wasn't directly involved in the case in court. Uh, media accepted. I suppose we're not directly involved, but we are. Be, we are involved in some way. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Edwards uh, were there. Um, the, the accused man's parents were there, but no other person, apart from one uh, lonely public observer. Uh, police, obviously, but they were paired down. Lawyers, obviously, but they were paired down as well. And the media were there, but we were very uh, uh, acute in our awareness that we had to spread ourselves out mm. um, so so yes it was it was a very very, very uh, different atmosphere I have to say to them than what we've been used to um, and Justice Hall again um, directly addressed what um, would be happening in the coming weeks to attempt to keep the trial running amid uh, the world seemingly ending around us yeah. Um and that will include, as we mentioned last week, some audio that will go up um, to allow people who don't or can't come to the court um, uh, being able to follow it via the website, the Supreme Court website. Um, there will be uh, strict um, cleanliness regimes used, including how the lawyers get their documents as they need to be into court. Um, hand sanitizer will be used, although it was in quite short supply, as it is everywhere else in Australia. We even heard that the uh, Justice Hall's orderly had uh, attempted to make some um, of her own over the uh, over the weekend to try and supply the court, but she, she didn't have any uh, or a, a little success. Um, whether she'll go back to her oh. recipe tonight, we're not sure. With millions uh, of others, I expect. Indeed, yes. <laughs> Um, and the, uh, more um, use will be made uh, in the coming days and weeks of video evidence to be given remotely, either in the court or from um, witnesses' um, own personal residences on a secure line if they don't feel that they're uh, confident enough or well enough to come into court. Yeah, and I imagine there must be some kind of a, a sense of urgency, really, because Justice Hall would want to be getting this trial to the finish line before it gets stopped in some other way. Yeah, I think that's fair, although obviously he's got a very uh, tricky balancing act because he doesn't want to be seen to be rushing mm. any witnesses or any evidence um, to the detriment of that evidence coming out. So obviously he's still got to be, uh, it's still got to all be done um, in an orderly uh, way and in a, a very forensic way. Um, and a very complete way um, because he doesn't want any evidence 
being missed or glossed over or um, not given to him that needs to be um, for the sake of trying to get it done. But what we did hear today, Nat, was that that time spent last week away from court. Um, some listeners might remember that I mentioned that Mr. Jovic was going to go through the, the, the fibre evidence very in, in, in great detail before it started to see if they could agree on any portions of it. And it would appear that has happened because um, Ms. Barbara Gallo said today that a lot of witnesses or at least 20 witnesses that were anticipated to be coming into court will now be read in. And so Ms. Barbara Gallo estimated that that might halve the time that we spend on the fibre evidence from 10 weeks down to five. Wow. Now, that wasn't done. I don't think that was done in light of the current global health crisis, but it certainly will um, it, it speed up the process, it sounds like, which I think will be a relief to everyone um, in, in terms of getting the trial over the finish line or certainly getting the prosecution case over the finish line um, because, obviously, like any public gathering at the moment, whether it be legal or social, it's on a knife edge and any, any slight hint that any of the participants might have been exposed in any way could jeopardise the whole thing. So the statements will be read in as opposed to uh, some of these people appearing as witnesses mm. in person, yes. which means Mr Jovic has had to agree um, agree to that and he doesn't have the opportunity then to cross-examine those witnesses. Yes, correct. But he has was given that time last week, the whole of last week away from court, go through that process to see what he would be satisfied as being read in and unchallenged basically um, and he has obviously agreed to that um, so as to really hone down what the issues are in terms of fibres so he's obviously comfortable enough to do that um, uh, in his own mind um, so he can he can really concentrate on what he feels the issues will be in terms of fibres and, and the ones that the witnesses that he really feels that he needs to he needs to question in mm. person in cross-examination in court yeah well, your fibre, um, the fibre portion of the trial did get underway and you, the first person you heard from was Senior Sergeant George Patton. Yes, so he is a, um, a forensic officer who was involved in macro for many, many years at a very senior level. In fact, we heard today that um, it was his job to go through all the evidence um, in totality in 2008 perform a review and go to his um, superior officers to, with suggestions as, of what might be um, forensically possible. And so it was he, uh, Sergeant Patton who went to then Deputy Commissioner Chris Dawson to suggest that they use FSS, low copy number, 2008 fingernails, which we've um, poured over in so much detail in the last few weeks. So a very central um, figure in terms of the forensic police officers involved in the case and it, that was revealed more fully today because he was centrally involved in 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 fibers in uh, transporting evidence to and from the uk and, uh, and other places and um, what we heard most about today he was very centrally involved in the examination of James Hare in 2000 
2009, when that hair was first taken out of the frozen storage where it had been since 1996, and then very, very closely looked at by um, forensic officers, chemists, um, chem centre people. So that's that's more um, uh, polylight and physical examination of the hair. And he was present at that, and it was his job to do a running sheet so basically record everything that was being done to Jane's hair on those four days mm-hmm. that it was um, it was looked at and record it and then it was his job to come to court today and to detail exactly what was done um, during that examination. Brendan, can you just talk to us a little bit about um, fibres and is this an area of specialty and what sort of things could we expect in a trial where fibre evidence is important? Yeah, sure. So um, it is an area of specialty, I suppose, um, and it, it falls under the greater uh, heading, I suppose, of what we, we generally call chemical criminalistics, which is, where, which is mostly undertaken by um, the state chemistry um, laboratories, I suppose, because... And that's largely because a lot of the techniques used to analyse fibres are similar techniques and similar pieces of instruments that are housed by those sort of agencies. So um, it's a a process whereby we basically are categorising fibres by a number of factors. So it's, it's not... It's not like uh, a DNA, I suppose, where you say the the matches is of X matches Y, but it certainly we can certainly narrow down, obviously, um, where a fibre may have come from or or the source material on the basis of a number of things such as colour and um, how it's made up. So the fibre may be from clothing that's nylon, it could be from clothing that's woolen, it, you know, it could be from a range of different. Um, artificially or, or um, naturally occurring um, types of uh, or sources, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and is, is Western Australia, do you know, are we leaders in this area or are there particular um, labs around the world that uh, are leaders in this field? Yes, yeah, so WA is actually being quite at the forefront of um, establishing um, what we well, what we would refer to, I suppose, as fibre databasing, uh, which is where we, you know, just like DNA or just like um, other forensic sort of fields where we have a database of a whole range of different fibres that we've seen um, and then we can kind of match them to a database. And, and um, the Chem Centre, as the, as the WA agency that does that, is, is very recently published um data on, on that on the development of that um, which I'm sure we'll hear more about Yeah, Tim back to Senior Sergeant Patton today it was interesting um, that he talked about in 2008 when he sent uh, some exhibits to FSS and it was interesting that he was the one who recognised that there were these pristine samples and how valuable they could be Yeah, so as I briefly mentioned there um, Sergeant Patton was one of the officers that was tasked with the massive task of reviewing every physical exhibit that existed uh, in the macro investigation, um, going back that dated back 
12, 13 years by that time, where they were stored, if they were stored, how they were logged, um, how they were catalogued, and what possible um, opportunities existed from any of them that maybe hadn't been explored uh, previously because of scientific um, breakthroughs and developments over the course of that the, those many, many years. Um, and as you said, Matt, he was the one that realised that AJM-40, um, the thumbnail which we've talked about so much, and AJM-48, had never been opened, uh, let alone examined the pots that they were in, in particular the yellow top containers. And so he um, recognised that and then recognised the possibility of low copy number testing. Um, it, it had just been three years before that that technique had been used at FSS in the uh, uh, Bradley uh, Murdoch murder trial, um, which resulted in a major breakthrough and a major conviction in another jurisdiction in Australia. The technology didn't exist in Australia also, so it couldn't be done here. Um, and so he took it up the chain of command, got an immediate tick-off from the Deputy Commissioner Dawson, who basically said, get it done. And within a week, they had. He had the, he had the meeting on the 22nd of August. By the 29th of August, all this stuff was packed up and ready to go to the UK. Um, and, and, and given it had taken 12 years to get to that point, to get to get that stuff out of storage into secure envelopes and ready to be uh, transported to um, to the UK within a week, you can see how urgent uh, uh the the, uh, the senior police thought this opportunity was, as it turned out, it was. Uh, it took three months for the fingernails to get tested because they had these other um, samples that they believed were more important at the time. We heard a little bit more about that today. These were hairs that were found, particularly on Jane, um, that police believed were what they call foreign to her, so they weren't her hairs. So they were really interested in those. Um, and they went to the top of the pile um, for examination at FSS. But as it turned out, it was those pristine, uh, those pristine exhibits that uh, Sergeant Patton had also recognised that turned out to be the crucial ones. I mean, uh, it's quite insightful, isn't it? Because we're not talking about a forensic scientist. We're talking about a police officer who has seen this, recognised it, understood that if he sent it overseas, he might be able to find something. Well, yes, and, and to have the seniority and trust of his senior officers, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure if it had been a lowly constable that had mm. walked into Deputy Commissioner Dawson's office and said, um, can we expend vast amounts of time, expense <laughs> and, uh, and manpower to, to take these tiny little pieces of fingernail over to the UK for the possibility that they might um, lead to something, uh, Deputy Commissioner Dawson might have been a little less, um, a little less forthcoming in his yeah. in his um, in his tick off, but it was, Sergeant Patton had been involved in macro for years, um, and he's still involved in macro to this day, um, and so obviously had the trust of his senior officers to such an extent that they said, "Yeah, George, let's let's do it. Let's see if if this could be the thing that breaks it open." And and it, in fact, it might well be. Uh- so, Tim, you've talked about uh, Jane Rimmon. This is really the first sort of day that we've heard anything in depth about the physical evidence found on Jane Rimmer. What was that about? Yeah. So, as I mentioned, this is Jane's hair mass that was taken um, wholeless from her body during the post-mortem, was placed into storage and was basically not 
touched for many, many years um, after that. Um, it was placed in a bucket, a billy, a billy bucket, which is one of these plastic storage buckets with secure lids on, and was placed into frozen storage. Um, this was in, now in 2009, um, and it was felt after this major DNA breakthrough at the end of 2008, beginning of 2009. That that was when everything in macro ramped up again, and everything was looked at again. Um, and so, and this was part of, of that um, re-examination or up, upping of the level of examination. So James here was taken out of storage, and it was literally frozen. Um, the, the the initial examination notes we saw today said the hair was it was in one big mass, and we actually did see photographs of James here today in court, shown in court. Um, which was allowed by Justice Hall because of the lack of um, anyone in court, really, other than police media um, and and lawyers. Um, so it was felt that, that there was a, there was enough responsibility for the people in court that you know they would be able to handle seeing that, and so yeah. we did. Um, and it was it the, the hair was in one large mass. And it was actually frozen in place, so it had, it, it had actually taken on the shape of the bucket that it had been in for oh. all those years. Once it was taken out and placed on a large piece of blotting paper or a drop sheet, it was then obviously left to thaw a little bit. And then it was split up into five section well it was teased apart first um so it became a lot easier to look at and a, a lot easier to work with and then all those pieces pieces of hair were placed into five different areas if you like and they were all then examined individually and various tests were done on them the, the presumptive test for blood the Castle Meyer test, as it's known, there was a presumptive test for semen also done on all these sections of hair, and they were also looked at um, by uh, with a polylight, which is the the alternative light source that uh, that CSI fans will have seen um, that shows up things that might not be visible to the naked eye, and then also all the other bits of debris that that, that came out off the hair as it was being examined and as it was being thawed out that had, that had um, dropped onto this sheet, they were also all um, examined to a, a greater or lesser extent. And Sergeant Patton said today that, that the, the examination was done for multiple reasons, as I say, looking for blood, looking for semen, looking for vegetation, and also looking for fibres. Um, and so that is, is what was done over a very, like four separate days, it took to um, tease the hair apart uh, first and then go through all the various stages and all the various tests on the, on all the separate areas. And Sergeant Patton was basically sat in the corner of a room um, logging everything that was done onto a computer, onto a running sheet contemporaneously, um, and that running sheet stretched to 17 pages. So you can see how meticulous that um, examination was um, and what we've got from it, although we didn't get to that today, uh, the prosecution, prosecution says is that in this examination and a further examination done in 2012, 
22 critical fibres that the prosecution says link Jane directly to Mr Edwards's car and Mr Edwards's work attire were found during those two examinations. And that's what we'll hear about uh, in coming weeks. Brendan, I'm curious, how long has a polylite been around and why would that not have been put over the hair samples a decade before? Um, So I couldn't tell you exactly, Nat, but I can tell you that that they've been around for probably at least 20 years. Um, But the, the old ones and... We're going back now, I suppose, but the, the first ones that were really quite high powered, as in um, with enough power to be able to really uh, differentiate different fibres and the like, were all kind of mains powered. So um, now we've got the capability with, you know, really high power batteries and stuff that we can basically have these within a, you know, what looks like a torch and, and portable and taken to scenes. But historically, these were really expensive pieces of equipment that needed to be mains powered um, and basically kind of lived in labs because they weren't particularly portable either. Uh, So that's probably my best explanation Mm. for why um, it would have been used kind of at a later date and in more of a laboratory environment. The other thing is when you're looking for fibres, um, you really want to be in a in a very controlled environment because these are, these are micro, almost microscopic um, and very very easily transferable and lost. So they're not the sort of thing that you really want to be undertaking an examination for fibres. You know, say out in the open outside at a crime scene. What does it look like when you are looking at a sample and you spot a fibre? Can you describe it for us? So using an alternative light source, the best, like, the best comparison is probably what everyone knows as, as a black light or, or those kind of uh, nightclub um, UV lights that um, you'll notice when, like, depending on what you're wearing, but some clothing will really fluoresce. So um, you probably, or the listeners might be familiar with, for instance, a nightclub where you're wearing, say, a white cotton shirt and you get in the nightclub and it has that really quite um, glowing sort of bluey-purple um, hue. Yes. Um, that, that's the sort of effect that the various um, different wavelengths of these alternative light sources or polylights um, can have. But it just depends on the, the colour of the fibre as to what that kind of emitted light is. So white, for instance, with uh, that kind of ultraviolet uh, wavelength gives you back that kind of blue hue, uh, whereas you know different colour fibres um, will give off different hues. And and the, the main thing you're trying to exploit there is the characteristics of the fibre compared to the background. So if you've got a, a piece of clothing uh, that's got, say, it's a black piece of clothing, then some fibres on that will be really easy to pick up with different wavelengths of these um, polylights. So pretty similar sort of thing again to go back to the nightclub where you might have bits of fluff on a piece of clothing that you never really realized was on it perhaps that shirt went through the wash with a towel and then you get into the nightclub and you realize you've got all these tiny little fluorescent flecks all over your lovely black shirt that you've just ironed and gone out in so that's that's kind of what what we're expecting to see and, and what we do see 
That and takes me back to my university days. Yeah. Now, I've got to say. I was thinking the same thing. Actually, I could visualise the light at, at the nightclub. And and Brendan, how then do you actually collect that fibre? Yeah, there's a, there's a number of ways we can do it. Um, obviously, a, a sim- the simple and uh, most direct procedure is to is to tweeze them off, or using tweezers or forceps to actually individually pick fibres off and place them into um, something like a petri dish uh, or, or a storage vessel. Um, if we're looking to scan a, a larger area or perhaps lift fibres off an entire garment, um, we can use what's called tape lifting, um, which is not any more technical than it probably sounds, which is where you know we can use strips of uh, like masking tape essentially and stick them down on the clothing and then tear those off and with them comes uh, a whole bunch of the fibres originating from the clothing, obviously, and any foreign ones uh, on the surface as well. And and the best and the good thing about that sort of technique is they're because of the adhesiveness of the tape that they're, they're relatively immobilised on that tape. So we kind of um, overcome the problem of these fibres being very transferable and easily lost. Mm. And. Once a fibre has, you know, glowing under the blue light, can you then sometimes see it with the naked eye? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, a fibre can be anything from what you would think of as a little offcut of um, some cotton on, on the hem of some clothing down to what that's actually made of. So if you were to take a piece of uh, cotton from the hem of your clothing, um, you'll see that it's, it's quite thick, but it's actually made up of a, of a whole... A uh, bunch of smaller fibres within that, and and a fibre by definition can really be anything range, ranging from the width of that uh, original length of cotton to all of those smaller widths that make it up. Okay, and with a sample um, such as in this case Jane's hair that has been frozen, taken out and um, examined again. Can that hair exhibit be used again after that? I'm just thinking about the DNA. Once you've used it, you've used it. With Jane's hair sample, uh, it's been taken from the freezer. It's been examined. Can it go back into the freezer for a later date to be examined again in case there was some kind of new technology? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's in, in the scheme of uh, DNA, for instance, it's, it's just like... Uh, any other exhibit, as long as it's kept cold and dark and um, and stored away, then the DNA is viable. Um, fibres don't really have uh, any life expectancy as such. Um, the only thing we really need to be concerned about is if they're getting dislodged or lost from the exhibit. Um, but there's certainly no reason why it can't go back in a, in a freezer or a fridge and be examined for a later date. Mm. Uh, Tim, was... Um Sergeant Patton uh, cross-examined today? Yes, he was, Nat, um, briefly. Um, and it mainly, uh, the cross-examination mainly surrounded a one of these um, uh, documents that he produced which related to uh, evidence um, stored by the WA police. Um, and it went to something that Doc, uh, DS Jim Stanbury had been questioned about many, many weeks ago now in regards to the documentation of um, some of the exhibits and and how well they were docu- documented and labelled. Um, it, it 
got a bit it got a bit tetchy at times. Um, oh. uh, um, Sergeant Patton and, and Mr. Yovich had a, a little bit of a, a back and forth, um, but uh, to be honest, this was a little bit of um, of hole poking by Mr. Yovich, tr- trying to show that maybe some of the documentation done by the police over the course of the investigation wasn't absolutely spick and span but it it, it it doesn't really go to any of the major exhibits so um so it, it wasn't it wasn't really of 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 significance um in terms of the uh, the, the whole case um what i, I what I, I neglected to mention was that that Sergeant Patton in his evidence in chief did actually detail how these, like the, the um, surroundings of the examination w- were done in, and it, it went exactly to what Brendan had talked about there. The, the, a special room had been set up um, in, in DNA um, cleanliness stakes, if you, want to, if you want to put it that way, with the full PPE, masks, gloves, um, uh, hair nets, uh, robes, like everything was done in 2009. This is that to uh, that possibly could have done been done to try and prevent a contamination because by this stage, obviously, police knew um, potentially um, what they were looking for um, because there had been this DNA breakthrough and how important this examination might be. Um, but we are going to hear that C word a lot, the contamination <laughs> again, because uh, we already know that Mr. Yovich has, has asked many of the witnesses who were at the post-mortem um, what their practices were in terms of potential um, contamination in terms of fibres and, and continuity and fibre and contamination will be, again, a major issue um, in the coming weeks because that we think is where the defence is going to go into how some of these fibres might have come to be on the physical exhibits um, that we're talking about today. It's Jane's hair. Um, we know that Kira's hair is going to be a major a player in the in the fibres, as are Kira's clothes, particularly her shirt, which was investigated by the FBI, um, and they did scrapings off that shirt, which prosecutors will say also turned up some of these fibres. Yeah, so I guess, like you said, it's just like DNA. We can expect a lot of detail about how anything could have been possibly contaminated. Brendan, is contamination a big issue with fibre evidence um, in cases? I couldn't tell you categorically, Nat, because I'm not aware of any cases where fibres have been um, such a pivotal uh, matter. Um, but just like DNA, they're very easily transferred from, uh, from one area or from one person to another. Um, and I suppose, un- unlike DNA, fibres can kind of literally jump out of tubes <laughs> or, or, or plates because um, there's some... There's some characteristics of fibres that that uh, with static electricity, for instance, on plastics, they can become adhered or they can actually kind of hop off. So um, I'm quite interested to see how uh, some of that's going to play out. But yeah, it certainly is a, very similar to DNA in the sense of we're talking about something incredibly small. We're talking about something that's incredibly transferable. 
Well, this is going to be very interesting then. (laughs) Well, thank you both uh, for your time today and thank you for your company. Your feedback is most welcomed. We're at claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au and we'll be back tomorrow, Tim, myself and Alison Fan for day 61 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Flashpoint, returning to Seven on Mondays at 9pm. Demanding change and discussing issues that matter to West Australians.